on this week's Devils in the Details. Another week with a round of excellent individual performances and an awful tactical approach. What are we learning at this stage of the season? And a last-minute winner from McTominay. Again. Keeps United in the hopes for Champions League qualification. Again. What does that say about McTominay? And what do the chances look like given the remainder of the season? Case, I think I'm now 100 years old after that United versus Aston Villa match. How old are you today? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm right about there. Centigenarian. Sounds about right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that, went, that match went exactly the way I would have expected it to. You know, we start out with very little control, but some threat on the break. Villa adjust, and it just becomes, you know, a complete lack of control from us. Uh, we could have conceded five or six from the from the amount of the from the ease with which they were entering uh, our half, um, and then obviously you know the heroic McTominay winner. It's a beautiful goal. Um, you know you got to take the wins. Three points keeps you in the chase for top four. Yeah, that's that's really broad strokes. All I have to say about it the uh, the performance was horrid. Though and I, I have trouble getting past that. Um, I, I don't think you, you can't play like this and expect to finish in the top four to to make up the the what is it four point six point gap we have right now. It, it won't happen playing like this, and I, I we keep on saying that, but yeah. So maybe we'll talk about that first. I actually had that slotted in for the end of this podcast, but United are currently five points off Aston Villa after that win and six points off Spurs. Whereas had they lost, they would have been 9 points off Spurs and 11 points off Villa with 14 matches to play, none of which are against either of these two teams. So this is obviously a huge victory if United are still looking to get back into the Champions League next season. Also worth noting that there will be a fifth Champions League spot handed out to a number of teams. Or sorry, to a number of leagues. I think it's two leagues next season. Um, and so United could technically also qualify for the Champions League with a fifth-placed finish, depending on how uh, the English teams that are still in Europe perform in the Champions League. In, there are three teams, or sorry, two teams. Europa League, I believe there are also two teams, and the Conference League, where there is one English team. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, United are five points off Villa, six points off Spurs, and need to overcome that now without playing either of them. That is basically where it's at. I don't know. What do you think the chances are of United doing that? I, I think what you said is pretty much right. Like, based on the way they're playing, it looks very difficult. Uh, because I don't think they're playing as well as either of the two teams that are above them. And that probably means more at this stage than the points gap, which is not that big. I, I don't know what I would put the odds at. I put them below 10%. Um just, just because of the way we've been playing more than the points gap, you're right. Um, we have Luton Town next. You should win that match. We have Fulham after that. You should win that match. Um, though obviously that's become a lot more difficult. Uh, they're they're in very good form. Like this is it's a weird it's a weird one, right? Because I I think this is one of the weakest 
leagues that we've seen in the last five years. Top to bottom, I don't think there are as many teams that you should that you should be in jeopardy of, of dropping points to. Uh, but at the same time, one of this is probably the worst defensive uh, side United have ever fielded um, in terms of their ability to prevent progression, prevent box entries, prevent high quality shots. Uh, I don't see any change in approach that makes it more likely uh, for that to end. Um, and with that in mind, yeah, I, 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 I don't, I'm, what would it take, do you think, for us to, to make top four? Like Spurs and Villa getting worse? I think Spurs have shown this season that they're only a couple of injuries away from being quite frail and struggling to get results, especially, I think, now injuries in deeper-lying areas. Um, I think Villa, in isolation, if you just looked at the 24 matches that each of these, these teams have produced, ignored who was fit for those matches, and just looked at the body of performances that were produced over that period, I think they are the favorites. But then on paper, I think they probably have the least top-end talent of the three sides so i mean i think united have the squad to do it i've i've believed that all season um to beat at least one of these teams but if not both um i think they're currently playing the worst football so luck i guess or one of them getting worse or united inconspicuously getting better because we've seen many configurations of players and sides from this United team this season and none of them have been particularly good so it would be something relatively unprecedented I think if United were to start playing incredibly well and win 10 of their next 14 matches yeah I mean we got a question about this I don't want to dwell on this for too long but what does it take tactically for us to get to a point where you feel like we're the favorites to make top four like what are the changes that have to happen broad strokes I mean as much as being not even good, but coherent in possession. Things like today, you get the 1-0 lead. I do agree Aston Villa adjusted their approach, but I also think some of the decision-making on the ball was just atrocious. Um, you don't always have to be in a position where you're going to go to these teams away. Aston Villa's a strong side, and, you know, blow the house down with your performance, but once you do get into that favorable position, why so keen to give it away with some of the decisions on the ball? Like, it just felt like we were passing the ball back to their goalkeeper and letting them build up, and they were doing a training drill where they tried to score, and then we got it back, and then we passed it back to them so they could start the training drill again. I mean, like I think was... that is that is down to tactical choices. Like It is. Well, like it's... This has been discussed in the, in the press conferences. Like, this year we are trying to play faster, um, and you can see it in the decisions that the midfielders make. Uh, playing over the top with, at a greater frequency. Um, and, yeah, and the I agree. As well. I think it's tactical. I think United also play up that side of their game when they play Aston Villa because yes, which I don't think is necessarily a high line. Yeah, it's not. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it's a significantly worse thing when you are already leading. Um, yeah. Because why yeah. give away the ball ninety percent of the time you get it when you already don't need to score again to win the match? You just need to prevent them from scoring, and if they don't have the ball, they can't score. So, all of that is to say, like, I don't think United have to be this amazing in-possession team to get top four, if that's the goal, or to get top five. I just think that they need to be coherent. And then out of possession, they need to, A, not collapse defensively, 
And then B, it would be nice if they occasionally showed flashes of good pressing. Like, actually winning the ball in the final third, but not at the cost of being defensively stable in the event that the first line is played through. So right now it feels like United can be very aggressive with their front three or front four, depending on the match. And then once you play through that, you can the the way United's line gets stretched, especially the midfield gets kind of dragged vertically across the pitch. And then there's huge gaps between the front three or four and the back four. And it's basically impossible to defend the opposition than playing vertically and playing through United. And I would compromise on whatever belief exists that this is getting the most out of high ball wins in order to preserve some level of defensive security. Um, I'm trying to be realistic here because I don't think United are going to show up next week. Like, it would be easy for me to say, be amazing at pressing, build through the press of opposition teams. Um, okay, but get I'm not to even. The final I- third. But we're not even. I'm not expecting that. So I'm basically just saying, be coherent when you have the ball and don't fall apart when you don't. And then I think player quality might actually be enough to get top five if you have that. Okay. That's not really. The, not, the, not the answer I was looking for to that question, but that's okay. Um,. I, I agree with all everything you said there. Uh, the decision making on the ball has to change. That's I think mostly instructional. Uh, Bruno notwithstanding, I think that's an easy change. I don't think it's a change we will make. Yeah, the the press, the structure of the press, how stratified it is end to end, is a huge problem that you cannot fix with the current the the way you're orienting the forwards. You can't fix the midfield orientation without first changing that. I don't anticipate us changing the orientation of the forwards. So you're always going to have that stretched space in midfield, which means you're going to have too much space between your defenders and midfield and between the defenders amongst themselves as well because they have to cover the width of the pitch much more proactively. Yeah. So I guess that's really where my pessimism in this respect comes from. It's not that I don't think there are changes that you can make to fix what I think everyone, I don't think anyone denies at this point that there, those issues are there. Um, it's just, I, I don't, it seems to me that the, the coaching staff doesn't view these things as a problem, which I just simply think is wrong. Those, I agree, those are the two key things, right? Like the press and the decision-making. And then the other thing that I think prevents you from like being competitive against these top sides that we haven't really confronted in a while, because uh, we've sort of been in a, a soft run of fixtures, is um, the numbers playing out from the back. Like we saw that today, so many times the fullbacks uh, were isolated and had to play speculative balls down the line. That's that's fully a build-up structure thing. That's about, yeah, just being far too dependent on these balls over the top, which is a, is a philosophical choice. In, in, in ter- and when I say philosophical, I mean in terms of your game philosophy, not your, not like Voltaire. Um, it's... It's that, it's also, you know, it's, it's a product of player tendencies. These forwards want to run in behind, and it's, it's part of how we create chances. But it's just, there's, there seems to be very little effective game management, uh, like you said. These ten, like some of these tendencies are okay, it's just they're not okay once you're already ahead. There's no reason to play with this frenetic um, need to, to add a second on the break, uh, when you're much better off just holding possession and, and trying to create chances against the block and, and then having the appropriate number of players back. How many times today did we see um, corner taken short and then Villa are breaking 
again with a huge numerical advantage when you're already yeah, up one there's nil. No, there's <laughs> no reason for that, and it's funny because corners taken short are actually supposed to be conservative. Like they they lead to counterattacks statistically within the Premier League at a far lower rate, which just means like the way we're executing in those scenarios, which is to say the the approach, the num- the numbers that we do have back, uh, the set piece routines are like totally insufficient. Um, yeah, I, there's a lot of easy fixes here. I actually think I just. I feel I feel that there have been easy fixes all season, and we haven't seen the fixes. So that's really where my negativity, I think, in this respect, comes from. But yeah, I think that's enough negativity. I think we've covered all the <laughs> the bad stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's potentially space for a more speculative discussion where we talk about what other teams who successfully do this or. By do this, I mean play out of the back and press high do, and how United should look to emulate them. But I don't think it's particularly constructive at this point. I think it'll become a little bit more um, important as and when we find out what the future of this team looks like. Um, And so I think it would be more fun for everybody if we just moved on to some of the more positive topics we have from this match. Because truthfully, I mean, I think the main takeaway beyond the tactics which have been awful for months is that a lot of players played really well in this game again and i think we're getting more and more proof that this is actually a good squad unlike maybe in previous years where united have had meltdowns and we kind of felt like it was not a very good squad or they weren't playing to um or or something was lost in the in the process of the managerial fallout um This time it feels like a lot of players are playing well. And the first one I'm going to go to is one that nobody actually asked about before we started recording. Um, It's Andre Onana, who has quietly been, I think, very good since United exited the Champions League, which obviously a lot of was due to his mistakes. Um, But he's been very good since United exited the Champions League. I think he's third in the Premier League for um, goals saved above average, which is post-shot uh, expected goals taken away from actual goals conceded. He has saved way more, or sorry, he has saved more goals than would have been expected given his uh, the shots he has faced. Um, and I do think there's something to be said about that having to do with the volume of shots United are conceding. But also, I think he is owed a lot of credit for the quality of saves he's making. Uh, in this game, the proactiveness he had coming off his line, and given what he's working with, I think the distribution has been quite effective as well. And the back four looks to him a lot to deal with difficult situations. I think we talked about this before the season. Goalkeeper play, incredibly volatile, uh, no matter how good of a goalkeeper you are. We saw Allison in a huge, in a really high-profile match a few weeks ago make massive, massive, massive mistake. Uh Basically, you know, put the nail in the coffin for Liverpool. Not to say that Onana is Allison, but sort of just makes the point uh, the best goalkeepers in the world can be made to look like fools when they're put under a lot of pressure. Uh, Liverpool rarely are. They were in that match against Arsenal, and things came to a head. Uh, I don't really expect Onana to stabilize his performance completely in this environment because we're conceding so many shots uh, and balls into the box. But, it, uh, yeah, I don't think it comes as any surprise that he can have a day like today where he was fantastic. 
Uh, I really think the sweeping is what stood out today for me. Uh, really proactive getting out of his box. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think goalkeeper is a need. I'll keep on saying that. Uh, I, I don't think we go into the summer with that as like a primary concern. Yeah, it's an interesting position in terms of the context of the market because I do actually, I did believe and I still believe that United got one of the few goalkeepers who can stack up to the elite group of goalkeepers that have already been claimed by the super clubs of Europe. Um, your, you know, Thibaut Courtois, Mike Mignan, um Allison, you already mentioned. To some extent, I think Ederson belongs in that category in spite of his flaws. And I think United got a goalkeeper who can stack up to those in a market where there aren't very many. And so I would really stick with this to try and get the best form out of him. And I also think in a functional side, you will get the best out of him because he's a very good goalkeeper. Um, and yes, he's had some struggles this season, um, but I don't think any that have made me think that he is that he is poorly skilled at something that I previously thought he was highly skilled at. Um, I think everything we've seen from him is in the realm of either ridiculous mistakes or actually being quite good in a very dysfunctional team. So, yeah, I'm not worried about Onana either, in short. And even if I was, I would still be looking to give this another season. Yeah, yeah, I think that covers that. Awesome. Um, last week, I wanted to talk about Dalo, but we didn't really get to, and I think he might have been man of the match again yeah. in this game. Um, Dan asks, can Dalo become a world-class right-back for this team? I'll start with this one. I feel like world-class is a very arbitrary term. It's kind of hard to discern what world-class means, but I think as someone who's been very vocally a big advocate for Dalo this season... Um, and last, I feel like I don't think it's likely that you see him be on par with whom I consider the best right backs in the world. I think right now it would be fair to say Trent is clear of pretty much everyone else in this regard for one reason or another. And that's in spite of his flaws. I know he's a little bit of a of an interesting player as a whole, but I think his overall impact is higher than what someone like Dalo is capable of, really. Um, that being said, yeah, I also think Ben White is fantastic. Uh, in that, even in that right back role, so would would say that as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I think the premise of what you're getting with Dalo is a player who kind of fulfills all of the things that we have talked about on this podcast. Um, he is very press resistant, very good in build up, very good at dribbling, very good at passing progressively. He is um, exceptionally athletic. He's tall and a very avid back post defender. His one-on-one success rate has been ridiculously high this season. I'm not sure if that's something that we can expect to persist for the rest of his career, given um, some things we've seen from him in the past that suggest that he might not be an elite one-on-one defender. But I do think his athleticism allows him to recover really, really well in specific situations. And so you're just getting a player who's going to be able to deliver a system for an elite manager, the way elite managers coach football now in a, in a highly effective way that I think is extremely difficult to replicate um, pretty much across the market. And so I guess my answer is I don't really think that Dalo will be world-class if the definition of world-class is in and amongst the best in the world in your position, like the singular best. But I think 
those players are unattainable, and as long as they are, Dalo is very close and also fits the needs of what United are trying to do. Yeah, yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, yeah, I, I think he's very technically secure. I think he also is very creative and bold with the way he uses the ball, which is a that's a, a, a trait that is unique to players who grew up in youth sides that taught, that teach playing out from the back. It's not something that your academy will anomalously produce. Um, you don't just wind up with some players that have it and some players that don't. An academy typically either produces those players and they don't. United don't really produce those players. Kabi Maynou is like a huge exception in that respect. Um, so it's he's really unique in the side as one of these players who is comfortable in these situations, will be bold with the ball, has touch when passing into, into tight areas. Um, so that has huge value. The other thing I'd add is, maybe I've mentioned this before on the podcast, funny thing about Dallo is the, his big standout trait in youth football, and I've, I know this because I've spoken to a few uh, scouts who, who focus on Portuguese football in particular, was his physicality. Uh, he was like a huge physical standout in like the under 18, under 19 age groups. And that's why he debuted so young. Um, yeah, and I just think it's noteworthy because I do think he's a he's a plus physical player in the Premier League. Like, I don't think he's an average, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, he definitely is. Which yeah. is funny because I don't think that's how people talk about him. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with, A, Aaron Wambasaka is obviously like a plus plus physicality defender with the ball on the ground. Uh, and that's who Dallas is being compared to. Um, and the second part being, we Dallow seems to get tons of playing time, in particular during the periods where we have the most, like when our shape is most stretched. Like under Rangnick was when he first started playing matches and we were just a mess out of possession. Last season, when the side were doing really well uh, and actually playing compact football was probably what people universally recognize as his best run of football. And then this season where he's been basically, you know, he's been switching sides of the pitch, changing roles a lot. Um, but obviously we've been stretched, uh, which is just, I don't know, like the lesson 2000 in how player environment affects, affects player perception. Uh, and yeah, it's, just, it's the story of Manchester United at this point. Yeah, I think the last point I'll make on this is... If Dalo is not as good as some of the very, very best right-backs in the world, what is the difference? And I think the difference is attacking output. Um, now, I think this is a really interesting area of Dalo's game to discuss because I don't think it's terribly clear why he isn't good in the final third. I think sometimes his decision-making is a little odd. I think sometimes his ball striking doesn't pan out as well in final third situations. Um, I think both of those are... Things that I have seen in the past with reasonable size, with reasonable sample size, be solved in players, which means I think these are things that Dalo can get better at. I just wouldn't necessarily bet on him getting better at them. I think it's something that I would say you want to look at him as the player he is now and then hope he gets better at that stuff. So I don't think it's ruled out that he takes some kind of leap and becomes even better than he is now. But at present, I don't think he is the best or as you implied the second best right back in football um and he is 25 so 
we're seeing something close to what he's going to be at his peak. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, I would go so far as to say his, his crossing is very poor uh, compared to the rest of his technical game, uh, which I think is... A, in spite of today. It's, it's, yeah, in spite of today, which put in a beautiful ball for the winner. Um, yeah, it, there's that, which obviously, it, that suppresses your value a lot because the best fullbacks in world football make a huge impact in the final third, and he does not do that. So it's noteworthy. For what it's worth, I didn't... If I did imply that I think he's the second best right back in the Premier League, I did not mean to. Um, no, I meant that you implied that he's not. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, okay, yeah. I think that does it on Dallow. Cool. Awesome. All right. Uh, Shaw's injury. Iona Triff asks the obvious one. When should we invest into a left back? I think many of the conversations Case and I have been having, I don't know if we've been having them on the podcast or just off of it, kind of imply that United aren't really going to be looking for a left back this summer, um, which I guess would make this a not obvious question, but I actually think it's worth discussing. At this point, Molossi has been out for, I don't know, all season. Has he played a minute this season? And Shaw, we know, is not someone who can be relied on to be consistently fit, even though he is an exceptional player when he is available. Does that mean that at some point United have to wonder... A, is Malasia going to be fit again? Uh, and how, what is wrong? B, when Malasia is fit, is he good enough to start the majority of the matches in a season? Because I think it might be useful to have a left back who can start north of 30 games for this side and be confident about that left back if every other season we're getting less than 30 90s from Shaw. Yeah, I mean, I think with Malasia, given how long it's been since he played, you just have to assume you're starting from, you know, from the ground up. And I think without development from last season, Malasia is not ready to, you know, play every match for United at left back. Which means, yeah, if Shaw, if Shaw really can't, if, if we go the rest of the season and Shaw's in and out of the lineup due to injury issues, you do need to start having a serious conversation about a long-term left back. Uh, yeah, look. Again, I don't think this is from a quality perspective because I do think early, like maybe a few weeks ago, we talked about how left back was not the priority for us. Um, I mean it more from like a, an injury perspective. Like you got to have healthy players. Uh, availability is the, is the best ability. And I just generally think United football teams in general undervalue having two available left-footed true left backs to play left back like it's actually pretty rare uh that a side has two of them and you should you simply should uh and last season united did have that and this season they don't and you, you see i think a pretty big effect on your ability to build out so yeah definitely it is time to start thinking about this yeah, I think, relatedly, I would say I would like Dalla to play most of his minutes at right back. But then I also think if you're signing a right back this summer who is very good, maybe that gives you an opportunity to give Malasia and Shaw another year and see if that gives you more information. Because it's not like United are going to be short of business to do this summer. And I think right back will be more pressing, um, given the options that are available in the event that Dalla was not. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I, I think that covers that issue, right? Shaw is injury prone, and he's getting older. Got to start thinking about it. 
Yeah. All right. Scott McTominay. And this might be the one that many people have been waiting for. Uh, McTominay has now extended his tally to eight goals and two assists in all competitions this season um, with three goals or sorry, two goals and one assist in his last three appearances, all of which were off the bench and in United's last three matches. Um, It seems like he's getting into a pattern of consistently contributing to goals, especially later in matches. His expected involvements are also quite up. Um, It's not quite at the 10 that he's at in the Premier League and Champions League, but the 10 actual goal involvements he's at. But I think it's around just above eight expected goal involvements in the Premier League and Champions League across 1790s, which is not bad. Um, We have talked a lot about how we don't think McTominay is a player who should be regularly involved in this side as a central midfielder, especially with heavy responsibility in build-up. Do you think maybe in this case we have found a role for him that actually improves the team when he's able to come off the bench like this and make impact? Yeah, I have no problem with this role, uh, again, as a, as a break glass in case of emergency thing. He shouldn't be starting matches. He shouldn't be coming on matches to play in midfield. But if there are instances where you're chasing a game, you desperately need a goal. I think at this point we can say with confidence that he is a, a serious box threat from crossing situations. Um, and when you're having trouble progressing and you can't create goals otherwise, you don't have serious forwards to bring off the bench. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I don't think that means, I don't think that justifies bringing him back in in a midfield role or starting him. But yeah, I, and dude, these goals are awesome. Like some of them are really. You know, there's something just very satisfying about watching a header get thundered in late in a match. Uh, and McTominay, obviously, like, I, I personally think that a lot of the players in this side have demonstrated, like, a lot of commitment to United this season. Uh, it's been a really difficult season, and I think everyone is playing very hard. No one more so than Scott McTominay. Uh, and that's always been true. And that means a lot. Like, effort is a big deal. And if you find it, you, I think we have found a role where he can be effective without really hindering the team in certain specific scenarios. And yeah, I'm, I'm fine with this. Uh, and, and I celebrated that goal very hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much there as well, especially when you now have five subs. I feel like it allows you to be less selective about the types of attackers you can put on the bench. Like... United right now, I would say, have three forwards who I would expect to be in the long-term outlook of the team, and they all start. Um, And if you want to count Bruno as a forward, then four. Um, We don't know what's going on with Ahmad. I don't really know what's going on with the youth players, and McTominay has straight-up outperformed Anthony this season in front of goal um, and as a whole. So, yeah, I mean, in the present, I have no issue with this at all, as long as it doesn't fade into him becoming a starter because of perceptions of him having earned it, because I don't think that gets the best out of him. And that definitely doesn't get up, get the best out of the team. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have to take all of the attacking options you can get, I think. And if he's willing to come on the bench, come on from the bench for 15 to 20 minutes, every two or so games and have this level of impact or attempt to score this way, I mean, I don't really have an issue with it. 
Um, he improves the set piece threat. He improves the cross, like basically, like you said, the crossing threat from every scenario. Um, so yeah, we got it. We got a question yeah. from Jack that was specifically, how does Scott McTominay consistently score? I can't seem to figure out what attributes he has that gets get him all these goals. I think it's as simple as this. A big part of scoring scrappy goals in the box is physicality and effort. And he does those things at a really high level, like even relative to a lot of Premier League strikers. Um, I think something we've seen with Anthony Martial a lot in the last five years is he does not hunt second balls ever. Like he very, very rarely scores rebounds. Um, he's not the kind of player who really like breaks his nose on the front post. And as much as this is like a your da take, like <laughs> that's that, that, that's just what playing striker is. Like that's what playing striker is, and it's a big reason that we like Hoyland so much, um, as he does a lot of the same things. McTominay, I think, is a bigger aerial threat, aerial threat than Hoyland is, and he comes on fresh in these matches. is a huge physical presence yeah. and breaks his nose, like <laughs> breaks his nose on the front post. Um, and I think there's just a lot of goals to be had playing that way. Um, I think that's a big thing. I think you saw it with Garnacho last season. Um, physicality is something we've emphasized a lot on this podcast, that it's something really important to have in your team. I would say the difference you can make with good physicality late in matches against tired defenses is even more outsized. Yeah. Like McTominay comes on with fresh legs. And he already has a physical advantages, uh, physical advantages against these players when he does not have fresh legs, or they also they start from the same time in the game. Um, yeah. So late in matches, he just becomes a huge, huge threat. Um, and also when you get into these points in matches where United need to need to score goals, it tends to be a lot of. The match fades from having this settled possession and patiently trying to carve out opportunities and fades into desperately not making flagrant decisions. I think that's just bad, but trying to carve out and force opportunities at a higher rate, even if you're doing it at a lower efficiency, because you want to just get as many chances at goal as you can in the dying minutes of a game. And if you're already losing or you're already drawing, the cost of conceding is not as high as the cost of not scoring. So the risk appetite is increased. And that just leads to a ton of balls into the box, a ton of set pieces, contested situations. These are all things where McTominay thrives. I think this primes him to be a good substitute. In the same way that um, last season when United were stretching defenses late in matches, Garnacho used to come on and be super impactful because he just came on with fresh legs. And even from the start of matches, he's already faster than most people on the pitch, but when the defense is stretched, he is way faster than everybody else yeah. on the pitch. I mean, I think so. a great example of that in Garnacho's instance, and again, Garnacho obviously a very different physical profile from McTominay, um, but a great example of what you're describing is if you go back and watch his winner against Fulham at the very end, last, yes. uh, just before the World Cup, he looks like, it looks like everybody else is moving in slow motion, uh, and Erickson plays a ball that's like, there's no way he's getting to that, and then he gets there easily, uh, with a decent angle on goal and finishes. I think that's just a great example of how if everybody on the pitch is tired already, I think the spectator loses the context of it because everyone gets slower. Um, but when you introduce somebody who's fresh and already has physical advantages, they play up massively. Um, yeah. So, yeah. 
It's something we don't get to talk about often on this podcast because United have not been able to build a starting 11 full of players that we really feel are impactful. But this is how teams like City were going and scoring 100 goals a season in the late 2010s. Um, They had two rotations of attackers. They had one run the defense ragged and usually get the opener. And then they would bring on the other set and they all had fresh legs and huge physical advantages. And they just tore the opposition apart. And yeah, I mean, substitutes, these are some of the like unheralded areas of winning matches against low blocks by like, I think corners of analytics Twitter, where it's become very um, focused on breaking down these defenses and settle possession, which is important, obviously, but set pieces, substitutes and stretching states, um, these are also important things that decide matches in enough volume that they should totally be taken into consideration um, and highlighted as something you should be looking to build into your squad. I think Spurs have had this a lot this season as well, where they've been looking for someone who could just come on the pitch and dribble at fullbacks, um, regardless of when in the match, because they just need that level of flatline impact to get the job done sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. All right, that covers McTominay. Um what else do we have here? Wow. Um, looks like we've covered most of it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Anything you want to talk about? Uh, no, I don't think so. We can go to no details then. Sure. Do you have a no details? Uh, yeah, we got a question from uh, Sav. <laughs> no, we're not. We're not doing this <laughs> yes, again. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Why are why are Arsenal fans obsessed with taking on animals in fights? Okay. You want, to, you want to take us into our no details section? All right, no details. This is the segment where we allow you to ask any question you want, but with one caveat. The questions cannot be about football. And Case, our friends over at Potshot have another no details question, and I feel like they're the only ones asking us no details questions, which means I guess we got to answer them. So Case, what what is the no details question for this week? Uh, this week, uh, Will Sav asks... What's the largest animal you could take in a fight? Aaron, I'll, I'll let you go first. Yeah, I just want to say, first of all, that two weeks ago, you had the no details question, what music are you listening to? I've listened to some fantastic music over the last two weeks since since the day we were Don't care, not the question. I have Don't care. I have been <laughs> watching the Best Picture nominees for the Oscars, and they're really good this year. But instead, we're going to talk about what kinds of animals I could take on in a fight. Correct. And anyone who's met me would say that I wouldn't hurt a fly. Um, So this is a very difficult question for me to answer. But I feel like the most realistic answer is probably any animal or most animals that are so small that... Like... Actually, no. I mean... They're very animals that are either so small that they have no chance, no matter what threat they could pose, or animals that are so big that they can't really move quickly. And then, like anything in between, I would be would be fatal, like fatal. So, anything are you thinking like you could big... like defeat an elephant? Like, what's a large animal? I feel like elephants think... charge, but I mean, like, I feel like I don't know. I don't know how dangerous 
like sub-Saharan animals are, but I feel like I mean most of them are. But what's I feel an like example there have to be some that's so big that you think it's not maneuverable enough to kill you? It could kill me. What, but like what? Me <laughs> what animal do you have in mind? What animal? <laughs> don't be I shy like now. This is, I feel. <laughs> I you know those like when people are like, how many tennis points could you win against Andy Murray? Yeah, or yeah. like. How many goals would you score for Man City? I feel like this is my yes delusional hill that I'm gonna die. What are you gonna here. say? A rhino? Um, a hippo? Hippopotamuses no, not a rhino. kill more not a human beings every year than any other animal, other than like no, rats I wouldn't say a hippo. And mosquitoes, like, and those are as so a maybe my take is wrong, and the biggest and smallest animals are actually the ones I should not fight, and the ones in the middle are. I mean, like, what's in maybe the middle? That's... Like. like I feel like I could maybe like I think fight anything from like a deer. big dog to a cheetah, I would be like certifiably destroyed. Yeah, I think I could like maybe kill a female deer, like a doe. Like I definitely not. A also, buck. it depends on like what types of not. I mean, I no weaponry. If that's your I would question. feel horrible. No weaponry. Okay, no, then then no, I have no chance. <laughs> that 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 defeats that. Okay, how about a small dog? But like, I feel like I I guess my point was like even. Even with weaponry, I think I would lose to most mid-sized animals. Because they would just evade my... Like, I'm not a skilled, like, machete operator or, like, I don't know. I don't... I've never used a gun before. So, like, I I couldn't... <laughs> like, I would not trust myself, like, on first shot to... Or, like, first... I don't know. I think if I gave you sword. an assault rifle, you could kill a mid-sized animal. I, would, I wouldn't be worried about it, Aaron. I... I I wouldn't bet on myself that highly. It depends on what their approach is like. I think if they like, I think if they were like far enough away that my first shot missed, and then they ran away, and then I couldn't see where they were, and then they crept up behind me, I think that's like a relatively likely scenario. Yeah, not backing yourself here, Aaron. <laughs> All right, so we need a final answer here. Um, it said largest. Largest, correct. With no weaponry, I'm gonna go with like. A mid-sized cat. <laughs> Honestly, I think that's a bad pick. I've I've seen some cats do some crazy stuff, dude. <laughs> but you know what? No, you're locked in. You're locked in. I'm gonna stick with a doe. Yeah, I'm gonna go with a female deer. A what? A doe. Doe. A oh. deer. A female deer. No, no, your audio cut out. No. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um. Um. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's my answer. All right. <laughs> you're gonna have to what? save your oscar picks for no next explanation week. of that nope no explanation no. I, I, I'll, I'll give my explanation uh they don't have horns uh they could kick me i'm not saying it's a guarantee but um <laughs> i think if they if they're forced to attack i think i can like get on their back and do a takedown and and then just like this is pretty brutal i don't even like i don't even the, the real issue here is i don't think i could like choke out a deer like or any animal is the issue like <laughs> it's not that i don't think i could physically do it it's that emotionally it would be so scarring yeah i, don't think I, could I feel do the it. same way like the thought of you like of you talking about like me with an assault rifle <laughs> yeah. made me feel awful <laughs> yeah 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 oh man okay <laughs> all right i think that's that'll that'll be a week <laughs> Next week, that was the I think... worst no details of all time. <laughs> That's like the I... new, the new, like the new height, the new benchmark for a bad no details. Next week, we're doing movies. We're gonna talk movies because apparently you're uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I've watched some really good movies since we recorded that last podcast, but gonna have instead, to save it. sorry, none of them were about wildlife. <laughs> none of them were about. None wildlife. of them were about wildlife. You seen Shape no, of Water? Of the... It's an Oscar winner. I have seen Shape of Water. Yeah, I have seen Shape of Water. Wildlife, interesting movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very, very, um, very picturesque movie. I feel like. Yeah, Guillermo del Toro's movies are always like very, very aesthetic. Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to call it an episode. Next week, Devils in the Details is talking Oscar nominees. <laughs> now, now, now you're advertising it. Now I feel like it's Aaron now Mo- I feel like Aaron I have to is giving the now definitive I have to go watch. Oscar winner. No, 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 no. We're not he's, doing he's, this. He's, he's going to criticize the Academy's choices. The Academy's choices. <laughs> what do you think I am, Twitter? Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, on a serious note, if you're looking for a break from United, I do think this year's Oscars nominations are great. Oh my god, I told um, you next week! And, <laughs> and, um, who do you got next? Luton Town? So, hopefully, Luton Town will also be good, but it's more hopeful than certain. Much like Case's ability to defeat Edo. On that note, we'll see you next week. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.